2: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change?
0: Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The that, That's the second
3: time
2: it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, home, those, those, those
1: That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well no, you can laugh, I need to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're
4: talking
2: about. Well, if you want like to.
4: stay alive for six nights. Oh, I'd, I'd say it to your face, not say it well, to you now.
0: Mean? I'm down to and we'll see them, will with What you doing down here, you're man. <laughs> it's the Irish Times second captain's football podcast. Owen Murphy and Ken all here. Hi, guys. Good How on are How are you? You seem,
4: you've got a bit of pep in your well, there. Well, i tell
0: you why, Ken. Why is that? The week was chugging along rather slowly for a while, football-wise. Mm-hmm. Nothing much going on. I approached today's podcast with a little bit of fear that we'd have yeah, it's a fear we always have. There will be literally nothing to talk about.
5: <laughs> Has it you know, happened yet, on? Well, it may None have, but we've
0: found a way to still talk for a little while. But, uh, you know, how much is there to say about Chelsea beating Leicester City, for example? But then, Nigel Pearson was asked an innocuous question from a journalist, and we all know what that means.
1: If you don't know the answers to that question, then I think you're, you, you are an ostrich, well, your head must be in the sand. Is your head in the sand? Can you, Are you flexible enough to get your head in the sand? Probably not. My suspicion would be no. Probably not. I can, you can't. Any, uh, any more questions, should we
2: wrap it there? You can't. Positivity. Listen,
1: you've, you've, you've been here often enough. For you to ask that question, I think you're either being very, very silly or you're being absolutely stupid. One of the two. Because for you to ask that question... I'm sorry, son, but you are daft. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. You've been in here. You've been here, and I know you have. So don't give that with me. Please, don't give that with me. And I'll smile at you, because I can't afford to smile at you. Now, do you want to ask a different question, or do you want to ask it differently? Go on. Come on, ask it, ask it. Or are not capable?
5: I, I, I just don't know what you. Um,
1: you don't know so, what? Um, I,
5: don't, I don't know how you've taken that question there
1: because. Well, you must be very stupid. I'm sorry.
4: i I
1: thought made No.
0: All right. He's gone there. That's uh, Nigel Pearson walking off. Uh, the question, I, I forgot to say what the question was to the start, but it's almost irrelevant because it could have been anything. In this case, Pearson had talked about some criticism of the team and the reporter asked. What, what criticism
4: are you talking about? Which What's is the criticism of your players are you it. referring to that you don't think is right? Not great That's what to continually
0: call another person another human being stupid. Mm.
4: Either what? stupid or silly. To be yeah, fair. Yeah,
0: then I think he came I think he settled on stupid you after You're
4: a while. daft son. Daft, stupid,
0: silly.
5: The best thing about that probably is the the commentation here after about maybe fifteen seconds of the press officer going, "Will we leave it there?" <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I'm afraid uh, there's a bit
0: more road left in this. The press officer was. It, it seems there's too much negativity. Was the end of that comment, which yeah. I thought, yeah, there is, but it's all coming from your manager. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure there's much the journalists can really do about this at
4: this stage. No, he's um, he's making a name for himself now, Nigel Pearson. <laughs> he re- he really We're is. We're going to
0: talk to Richie Sadler about this a little bit later on, right after today's report on sport. I'm not saying you can talk more about Pearson now, can you? can feel free to do so if you wish. No, I, mean, I know Richie's very interested in the subject. That's that's all I'm saying. He's got a lot to talk to Richie about.
4: You know, Nigel Pearson is the real deal. You know, he, he really, he does come out and do these press conferences which are still people are still going to be talking about in 20 years. <laughs> and, you know, and you look it up on YouTube and it'll have 240,000 views, you know. Of Nigel Pearson going, you are daft, son. Uh, you know, are you an ostrich? <laughs> are, are you an ostrich?
3: <laughs> I think I, further, I can.
5: You can't. This will be... You know, if we're going to name the... This will be the ostrich press conference. I feel like there's going to be more than one Nigel Pearson press conference meltdown, or, you know, rant, yeah. uh, on YouTube. You're going to have to, you know... Differentiate between them in some way. This one will become known as the ostrich press conference, with uh, with good reason, I would
4: think. He's got a lot of contempt in him, uh, Nigel Pearson. He 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 really does. He's I wouldn't I would hesitate to describe him as a bitter man because that's a, that's a it's kind of an all encompassing condemnation. You have to say someone's a bitter man, but I do think he's bitter about a few things. Uh, I mean, there is there is that interview that he did a while ago. He's done a few interesting interviews. One was with Stuart James. He mentioned, uh, oh, you know, uh, he was talking about the kind of person he is uh, and how he he gets annoyed by um, politics and people who are um, the election annoys him. All these people pandering, these politicians pandering. They don't have any beliefs. You know, you got to have a fundamental belief. You know, that's what he's saying. He's not the kind of person who just is a is a kind of uh, a leaf in the wind, you know. going whichever way. He's got beliefs. Uh, for instance, he's not the kind of person who would who'd put on a sna- stand there in a sideline in a snazzy suit and a scarf, put a scarf on that seemed to be in fashion for about twenty minutes. There said he's said, "Stuart James, your you're thinking that's a bit bitter." Like you know, come on, wait. I mean, it's not unknown for a football manager to wear a suit or a scarf if the weather's cold, you know. But yeah. he's he's obviously been watching that. You know, barely able to contain his anger. (laughs) Barely able to contain his anger at these preening peacocks punting about on the sideline. You know, you're supposed to be a football manager, mate. You know, that's what Pearson is thinking. It just occasionally comes out. Uh, Jose Mourinho likes to pretend that he's got a bit of Nigel Pearson's about him. Uh, He was boasting last night that, Oh, you couldn't broadcast my team talk. It would just be... Beep 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 beep. So this is what this is how uh, Jose uh, revs up the boys. Mm. You know, with an obscene tirade, just getting right down into the, the whatever hot masculine stuff that drives his just rooting down into that. <laughs> but he has to use uh, bad language for that. But of course, you know, we don't have any evidence of that.
3: There's
0: no language that is. Too shocking for John Terry to hear immediately before a game. Oh, the worst God. word you can possibly think of that there is a, that exists in the English language just will con- not shock jo-
5: John Terry. will take it. Yeah. Continually shout that word <laughs> into John Terry's face <laughs> for five minutes, and th- you'll get somewhere close to what John Terry's truly feeling.
4: <laughs> John Terry is is now obviously Chelsea have, have kind of started the victory parade a little bit. They haven't won the league just yet, but they the league is in the bag, uh, and they're saying now what they're doing is demanding a bit of respect. Right? Mm-hmm. This is the kind of paradox of Chelsea's position, I think. Um, they're saying, you know, we deserve respect. Uh, we've, you know, we've been great. Drogba saying, you know, we've been great all season. Mourinho saying, we've been great. John Terry, we've been great. You know, we deserve respect. But you're not going to get respect. I mean, that's the, that's the price of kind of doing things the Chelsea way. And what you have to do is take the lofty position that your respect means nothing to me. You know, the respect of idiots means nothing to me anyway. I mean, I've got all these idiots complaining about like, the, the way we play, criticising us. They don't understand the game, and I don't care about their opinions. That's kind of the view. You, that's kind of the attitude you have to strike. You can't go, ah, oh, we're going to win ugly. We're going to frustrate everyone. We're going to revel in the, in the howls of the Arsenal fans at the Emirates. And then we're going to turn around and demand their respect as well. No, you can't have it both ways. Uh, Chelsea have the title. Uh, not a lot of respect. and In my opinion, they should be happy with that. Uh, but they seem a little annoyed about it at the moment. Lewandowski? There was a game on Tuesday night, Owen, uh, between Bayern Munich and Bristol Dortmund, the German Cup semi-final. It was at the Allianz Arena. It sounded like I said I was at the Allianz Arena. I was not at the Allianz Arena. Um, It was a 1-1 draw. Lewandowski scored again against Dortmund. Um, Then Dortmund equalised, then it went to extra time, and then it went to penalties, and then Bayern missed all their penalties and it's one of the most amazing displays of penalty shooting I've ever seen. You enjoyed seen.
0: it, Murphy. We were all watching it
4: late night in the office. Well, let me let me describe the first three penalties. <laughs> first penalty, Philip Lamb uh, takes ages, by the way, to take this penalty. It's literally, he's, he's, he's plotting it for, you know, 15 minutes. He's thinking about this penalty. He eventually puts it down and completely, he does a David Beckham or John Terry type slip, standing foot slip, uh, completely messes up the contact high and wide, disaster, um, who scored for uh, I can't remember who the, that was Gundogan scored for Dormann yeah, nice penalty uh, second penalty Xabi Alonso comes up does exactly what Philip Lahm has done exactly the same I've never seen I, I mean you've seen these things happen occasionally Beckham against uh, Portugal was it or Turkey in, um, uh,
0: Portugal yeah in the Euros
4: in the Euros yeah um, Terry obviously in the Champions League final Alonso does the same thing. Lamb does. Ball goes the same direction. Everything misses.
0: Xabi Alonso, great at free kicks. Not so good <laughs> um He
4: like he scored four out of eight direct free kicks this season. Like it's, it's ridiculous. And and okay, didn't score this penalty. Then it was Sebastian Kale score for Dortmund. Then it was uh, who came up? Oh, Mario Goetze comes up against. Uh, but it's like almost as though he feels like weighed down with guilt over something, and his penalty is one of those really nice high oh, for the goalkeeper. Really but, awful penalty. Yeah, saved.
5: What it, but in fairness had gone too far the other way and said right well the one thing I can't do here is try and leather the crap out of it and uh, blast it over the bar I've got to get this on target gotta,
0: gotta make the keeper work
5: yeah I and would, he
4: barely made the keeper work so so it's 2-0 already so Matt Hummels comes up he scores it's all over already so Matt Humbles, uh strides up places the ball and smashes it pretty hard but Manuel Neuer what a save by Manuel Neuer! And it, and you know you've got a goalkeeper like this, Well, rebounds beast off like this,
5: hand like but forty yards back out the field, like his like his hand is actually made of steel.
4: You can take it up from here, Karen.
5: Well, no, no, no I, I think
4: can. you can. No, wh- what exactly? What exactly were we thinking? What Man- happened next?
5: Manuel Neuer. Picks up, the, Manuel Noir basically, kind of like Homer Simpson, Stan, stand back, doctor, I'll deliver this baby. <laughs> Manuel Noir is going to single-handedly win this penalty shootout for uh, Bayern Munich. It, was, it grabs the ball off the person who, I ho- I hope this is what happened. He walks back to the circle, grabs the ball off the person who was due to take the penalty and says, listen, I got this.
0: Walks Start the, celebrating.
5: Start
4: celebrating. <laughs> Bust the ball down. and The world as one asks itself the same question. Mm.
5: I wonder now, is Manuel Noir going to place this or what? (laughs) Might he go for power? I think he's selected power drive (laughs) and blasted it off the bar and that was that.
4: Yeah, off the top of the crossbar, the ball disappearing into the night sky. And uh, it was just incredibly inept. Uh, uh, The last penalty was scored. Uh, No, they didn't need to score another penalty, did they? No, that was it. They missed four and conceded two. end of shootout. So, uh, pretty depressing night for Bayern Munich. Good for Dortmund there into the final against Wolfsburg. So, Jurgen Klopp might leave there uh, winning a trophy in his last match. Or they could lose to Wolfsburg. who have had a much better season than them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main thing about this game from uh, Bayern's point of view wasn't just that they lost the, the cup. They would they cheerfully have taken losing the cup. Uh, the problem was that they lost Arjen Robin, he, uh, he came on as a substitute after 16 minutes. His calf is torn. He's out for the season. They also lose Lewandowski. He collides with the goalkeeper, breaks his nose, breaks his jaw, and gets concussed.
0: Well, he must be out for the season.
4: Playing next week, Owen. <laughs> he, he is He's apparently not actually playing next week. Apparently, he is. Look, it's a big game. On it's a very big game. Uh, they're playing Barcelona Wednesday night, and Robert Lewandowski I'm sorry,
0: broken jaw concussion. What was the other one?
4: Uh, broken, nose. broken nose. Ah, here. Look, they're going to stick a straw up his nose and have a kind of a special face mask steady for Steady
0: that brain. Stick something into that brain there just to steady it a little bit.
4: Karl-Heinz Rummenigge is rather profoundly convinced Lewandowski, 26, will be able to return for the first leg at Camp Nou on May 6th. A special mask to protect his face should ensure he can play against Barcelona. Um, so, uh, I don't know about... Um,
0: the old return-to-play protocols are maybe more yeah. of a rugby term. I don't know... How, if they exist to any great degree in German football, by the sounds of things. Listen,
4: the thing about
5: a broken nose is, right, it's broken. Can't do anything about it. Broken jaw? Broken jaw, probably, the same, I mean, it's quite close to your nose. So I presume the same medical... Um, traumatic brain injury? Well, you, one man's traumatic as another <laughs> man's knocked up on the play. Oh, no. <laughs> See a couple of stars. Yeah, shook up on the play. That's the old NFL. Uh, Troop
4: everyone's really looking forward to that game anyway that is coming next week I'm sure we'll be talking about a lot more on Monday but there's a couple of things um, we should just mention from the Premier League uh, a kind of an injury survey uh, which was done which Premier League club do you think has uh, suffered more injuries than any other this season who has the worst record Uh, Arsenal Arsenal
5: yeah Uh, Maybe I'm just, you know... uh, I have a vague idea that Arsenal Arsenal, always seem to have a lot of injuries. I don't know about this season, but over the last 10 seasons, I would say Arsenal.
4: That is true. However, Arsenal are not top of the list. Uh, That is Manchester United. Arsenal, in fact, are second on the list. They have had two fewer injuries, 66 to 68. (laughs) Uh, So it looks as though uh, the German fitness trainer Arsenal have brought in since the World Cup has been... um, has had at least some sort of effect. It looks as though Luke Shaw really is making the big difference. Luke Shaw has had uh, six injuries <laughs> this season, um, so he's been causing a problem. Burnley, uh, Leicester, and Swansea uh, are the teams, uh, the three teams with the fewest number of injuries. It's interesting to see Burnley uh, at the bottom of the table, especially given that their style is very physical, very uh, yeah. based on a lot of running, very demanding, and their players have played a lot of minutes. Maybe it's just a case of. How injured are you? So. That's
5: what was that? What I was going to say. The, oh, it's funny that the three, the three teams without much, of, much resources to replace injured players uh, are the teams with the least amount of injuries. Yeah.
4: Although Chelsea are quite low down as well. Chelsea are, are sort of seventh from bottom, 43 injuries. I mean, they're definitely in the lower reach of the table. The they're doing uh, something right. Yeah. Well, Mourinho's
5: first. doing something right by not dropping anyone. So if you're in the eleven and you get injured, well, then you're don't, probably not going to get your place back. So. Yeah,
4: you don't admit it. You, th- so, yeah, well, what we can say is that the more likely, the, the, if teams that have a culture of admitting to injuries suffer more injuries. That's, this, <laughs> that's I think, what this table is telling us. Yeah. Uh, the final thing on that we just want to mention today is the, and this is something I think we're going to be returning to a good bit over the next little while, is the way in which the Premier League is slightly changing in nature now. Uh, Something is happening at the moment that hasn't really been happening, that hasn't happened before, which is that the income of the clubs in the Premier League has started to grow much more quickly than the wages of the players. Um, It has always been the case previously that whenever that any increase in income, this is the thing Alan Sugar used to always whinge about, uh, you know. It doesn't matter how much more money you give the clubs; it's all just going to go straight out the door into the pockets of the players and their agents. This is what he would always say. Well, that has actually stopped happening. I mean, the players are still getting paid more. The income, uh, the players' wages, uh, continue to increase. It's five and a half percent last season, but the income is actually increasing. The, say uh, okay, into into the twenty thirteen season. Uh, Players' wages went up 5.5%. 2013-2014 income increased by 22%. Right, so basically the clubs are, the extra money that's coming in is now not going to the players anymore. Some of it is, but most of it is going... To the owners. Yeah. So this is how you've got a situation like, I mean, Newcastle are the the kind of most, most sort of brazen example of what's happening here, where they have, you know, £34 million in the bank, which they clearly have no intention of spending on any footballers. My gosh, like, yeah. I mean, why would I waste my money on like buying football players from my from my club? I mean, that would be stupid. I wouldn't make any money then. You know, this is kind of the uh, the attitude I think is beginning to change, um, where they really are beginning to they really are beginning to see the clubs. As, Hang on, we actually can make a profit. It's always been thought in football, oh, you can't make a profit. It's like you're just going to spend silly money. It's a great way to lose a fortune, but not a good way to make one. It's now. <laughs> they're now basically looking and going, hang on we can all make money here what that might mean is that um these the fact that say sky subscribers in britain are shortly going to be paying even more to watch Premier League football and sky is obviously paying way more to you know to get the rights to the league may not translate into any <laughs> you know any sort of, like the, a better level of player you would have thought at least if their clubs are spending more money than clubs in other leagues they're eventually going to end up with a lot of the best players in the world. Um that may not actually be the case.
0: No, but at the level that you're talking about where Real Madrid and Barcelona have most of the best players in the world, are they getting them purely based on the amount of money they can pay them? I don't know if they are. The, I don't think it strikes me the League. No, it's not. one of those things you can you can keep throwing money at it and and say that that 25% increase you talk about in revenues all went to the players. I'm not sure if that would actually markedly change the very top level of player they get. It might bolster the lower ranking they might be more likely to get a, a talented Brazilian player into in, a lower ranking Premier League club I'm not sure if it would make that much difference to what Manchester United are doing at the moment or what Chelsea are doing at the moment
4: I think that the way, the only way the Premier League clubs can could actually supplant Barcelona and Real Madrid in the, who, who are clearly the apex clubs in the game now is by being successful in the Champions League they have to win the Champions League you know if you've got a situation where English clubs are the dominant sort of force in that or you've always got an english club in the final or you know likely to win it i think then the combination of that with the highest wages will eventually i mean it's look at, it's you know the example would be bayern munich mm. you know in 2009 2008 2009 nobody's talking about bayern munich you know it's they're, they're almost a kind of a backward like michael ballack remember was their best player he he joined chelsea because he was like well i've kind of I, i've kind of outgrown bayern you know now Bayern are this enormous uh, club, but it's purely because of their uh, getting to the Champions League final. You know, in what three of the last five years, that's what it's about. And until the Premier League clubs start doing that, they, they, all the money in the world isn't going to give them the credibility. Only that can give them credibility.
0: That's it for today's Ken Early's report on sport.
1: And he is my second captain. Second captain, of uh-huh. a humorous competition I thought important men for my selection.
0: Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? You're not, well, not too bad. I'm very interested in your thoughts on one man today. He's dominating the news cycle, Nigel Pearson. He's some man. <laughs> would you like to play uh, under under a man like Nigel Pearson? I,
3: I really don't think I would. Um, e- e- even as a standalone like event or performance, last night was w- was really bizarre. But even in the, if you catalogue the other incidents that we know of from this season, even alongside those, it's still, it's still. Those, yeah,
0: those incidents uh, were the weird thing with James MacArthur where he pinned him down and had this aggressive, deadpan uh, facial expression. After that, he was sacked shortly after that, apparently, uh, and then reinstated. We nobody knows exactly what happened there. Had a bit of a, go- had a massive row with Gary Lineker, who's <laughs> involved with Leicester City, was he was a vi- vice honorary president or something along these lines. And Paul Rowan was the other journalist of the Sunday Times previously in his fire called a prick wasn't it by, yeah. uh, by yeah. <laughs> Nigel Pearson uh, is there any excuse for it manager under pressure relegation fight these kind of
3: things no if, 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 if it was a simple case of it, it being a high pressure job or the fact that he's a manager we would see this behaviour from all managers all the time and we don't and it's, it, it isn't there is no excuse for it like to call a journalist that and, and I've, you know, I watched the, 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 the questions. I've seen the press conference of what Paul Rowan asked him. There's nothing, nothing at all warranted that response from him. Um, like earlier in the season, he, he, was, he was punished for telling a fan to F off and die. Mm. Oh, I forgot about that one. Now, now I I can understand that, right? It's it's poor language to use, but I have absolute sympathy in a situation like that where you're going to assume you're getting dog's abuse. Something similar probably to what Pearson told the fan the fan was telling him. Mm. And he could have been telling him to it on a weekly basis for a long, long time. We don't know the context. But in a highly charged situation like match day, when someone's roaring at you, I've been in the scenario loads of times. You want to give it the a, a same and more back to him, so that's fine. But in a press conference, when he was asked the questions by Paul Rowan that day, to turn around it, not even the the use of the word prick, mm. it was even just the way he responded to him. It was it was just so like dismissive and just he he he, he talked around as if he was. And there's a pattern now because yeah. this is this is the, the, what we've seen again this week.
0: Although it's funny what Richie says there that you would have a lot more sympathy in the case on a, almost on a human level in the case where there's a guy abusing you it's hard Absolutely. not to abuse him back although I would say I have a feeling that managers sometimes find it easier to bite their lip in those situations than they do some managers I think might find innocuous questions from journalists but they would perceive as stupid questions from journalists to be equally as infuriating as a fan telling telling them to go F off and die yeah well not saying it's right but I think it might be the case you could, some managers barely tolerate these scenarios
4: yeah, I think most. I think managers, if they're smart, will realise that innocuous questions from journalists are fine. <laughs> <laughs> all they, all you need to do. So is So many of
0: them can every day, twice a week, probably they're sitting out there getting these.
4: Yeah, well, you know it's fine. You, what
0: what are you termed innocuous questions? What managers th- feel are just stupid questions by stupid people, as as they perceive them.
4: All you need to do is give an innocuous answer, and then the whole thing's <laughs> over. You both go home, and everything's fine. Everyone gets paid. The alternative is to go. You know what do you think you're saying, waxing and waning, prick? Uh, you know, this is what Nigel Pearson did. I mean, I, I don't understand that. That was the incident with Paul Rowan. Essentially, yeah. Paul Rowan's question had had included a reference to whether Leicester's season was waxing or waning, right? <laughs> now, it, do, it doesn't seem like an obvious turn of phrase necessarily, although you can see what he's... What well, he's getting at, you know, are you improving or, or disimproving at the moment, I guess is is the meaning of the question. And Pearson just reacted really, really badly to it. But, and it was weird because it was like, why has he reacted so badly to that? I don't understand what, what was in the question that made him react so badly. And it turns out, I mean, he did an interview with Sir James a little while later um, where he did explain it. And this is how he explains it. He says he, that's Paul Rowan, was quite clever because there was something that happened in the Thursday presser the waxing and the waning. I said, uh, when asked about the tide turning, I said, I think you'll find that's got to do with the gravitational pull of the moon. Thinking, yeah, all right. And it got regurgitated after the game. And I suppose there's a Liverpool game at home, Palace, so there's this cumulative effect of, is he losing his marbles? That's the explanation. I
0: don't get that. <laughs> no. I, don't, I've, I read the same interview, and I don't understand that as an explanation. Yeah, I don't
3: even call that, I would. how is that <laughs> described as an explanation? That's just a load of... He, Words. Yeah,
4: he, he's thinking. I guess that, that uh, Paul Rowan is is engaged in some kind of campaign of psychological warfare against him. You know, needling him with like references to his previous press conference. Uh, I guess that's what he's saying. That's not true, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I'd be very surprised if that was true. So it's it kind of shows the paranoia that's going on there.
3: He also did say in that interview he, he acknowledges it's something that maybe there's a bit of mischief in there as well, and and he used the phrase you know subliminally. He says there's a mischief side of me and probably subliminally I I I'm knowing the mic is on. What's his understanding of the word sublimo? Like it's <laughs> sitting in front You're in of a press mic. conference. Most people listening to this, whether you've been in a press conference or not, you know the setup. That the, the main the main the interviewees at a table and all the microphones are in plain sight and you know the drill. Everything you're gonna say is gonna be recorded. So I don't I don't get like, his behaviour is, is difficult to understand. All his explanations around his behaviour don't really add that much light to the thing at all um, or don't provide a context where you'd go, do you know what, I actually get now what he meant there. He just maybe could have explained it better at the time. I, I don't get any of that having listened to his explanations as to why he did or said the things he said.
4: I I mean, I, I find it amazing that Pearson is the is the guy who's really, you know, causing all the fireworks now. At this stage of the season, because I remember when he st- when the season started, <clears throat> he kind of struck me as being quite thoughtful and kind of reflective in the way that he spoke. You know, was, an interesting
0: man, yeah, he's he's, slightly
4: different. He's he is quite different. You know, he, he's he's kind of um, he's quite understated. The way that he he goes about things, he he seems to think about every word that comes out of his mouth before he says it. And over the course of uh, trying to keep Leicester in the Premier League, he's just cracking up. I mean, I, cracking up is is. Cracking up is is the wrong way to put it because he's not he's not cracking up. In fact, his team have won four out of the last five games and are out of the relegation zone now. So it's it's kind of an amazing recovery. Uh, he is actually doing well at the moment, but it, I think it illustrates the sort of pressure, the the kind of stress that his job entails. But
0: what I would say there, Ken, is that. Uh- and cracking up is definitely the wrong word because it's not as though this guy has just exploded here and lost the head. And well, come on. The
4: ostrich thing is like, no, is, but, is mad. But it's, I know it. It's nuts.
0: But it's methodical as well. The way he's, he's trying to take it, it's methodical. It's a strange method, sure. But <laughs> hes he's quite surgically taking this guy apart. You know, he's bullying him. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. He's sitting there. He's in the position of power. And people might not think that because there's one manager and it's fifty journalists. But the manager's the guy who's got the power in that room. He's on the, he's higher up in the social scale than any of those guys talking to him. And he knows he's gonna unnerve these people if he uh if he goes about his business as he's done here. So it's it's I'd almost give him a bit more slack if it was just, oh, I lost the
3: head, I call a guy a prick or whatever it is. I just think this is Horrible bully. There was a nastiness to it. There, it. He was demeaning and really disrespectful, and yes, bullying. He was all of those things, and I can't think he kept saying things like "Are you if,
0: flexible?" I didn't. Are you flexible enough to get your head in the sand? My suspicion would be no. Is he trying to? Is he talking about his physical appearance? Uh, there did that he, he follow that up again. with a claim that he could. I can. You can't.
4: Well, so said, it depends what angle you're at. Really, I mean, I could. Anyone can get their head in the sand. You know, if they if they lie down. On I can't. The sand. If you're on all fours. I you yeah, can you I can mean, easily do it I
3: think that the suggestion here is could you do it while being completely vertical
4: could you bend down and could you
3: bend down do you have that flexibility I suppose in your back your I'm lower actually back?
0: really inflexible always was even when I played more regularly played football and the rest I, I was just totally inflexible
3: can you touch your toes a lot no, of legs like,
0: can't even close I had a hamstring issue recently I think I might have talked about this in the show and I was seen by David Breen limmer Curler is uh, a really top physio and he asked me to do you know, you know when you just lie on your back raise your leg keep one leg straight down and raise the other leg up in the air and you're supposed to get to an angle of whatever I don't know 80 degrees or something but I was up around the 20 to 22 degree mark and it's shaking violently he's, he's what's wrong with you you absolute weirdo so I, I, I empathise with this journalist if he's not flexible enough to get his head in the sand from his standing position but Nigel but the, Pearson claims he can
4: yeah which, is, which I'm, I'm impressed with because he's a big enough big enough lad he's huge um but, you know, the the things that he... Uh, are you, So your head must be in the sand. Is your head in the sand? Are you flexible enough to get your head in the sand? My suspicion would be no. So this is like just... Uh, I, I don't know. But the, he then kind of demeans him as well on the, on the basis that uh, the guy, who's clearly sort of a little taken aback and blindsided by this weird uh, kind of um, stuff that Pearson is saying, is, is kind of gibbering a bit and not really coming back with like a paragraph-length question. Uh, so then he starts saying, you know... Uh, essentially, you're you can't. You're not good enough at your job to ask me another question. You know, you're. What's, you're,
0: what's erm? You know. Oh yeah. 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 I just don't know what you um. Uh, what um? What's that? What's that?
4: It's it's. You must be very stupid. I'm sorry. So. Uh,
3: yeah, that stuff. That's all unnecessary. Like giving a smart arse answer or dismissive response. Fair enough. Again, you, I can understand that. Maybe it's it. It has to be very tedious listening to. So we've called them innocuous questions from the same people twice a week. We're into like we're into April May now, so they've been listening to the same questions for a long, long time. But to start going down that road and and and, and mocking the person, yeah, then you kind of lose any sympathy there. I
4: mean, it's it's just creating problems for him that that shouldn't really exist. I mean, at the moment, he, they, you know. You would think with all these recent wins and coming out of the relegation zone, this should be quite kind of good time. Instead, their manager, you know, Leicester's manager is kind of this figure of like, you know, I mean, mean, he's the guy, he's ridiculing the journalist, but... Once he's out of the room, I mean, as, as you were saying, you know, the power relation is obviously he's the kind of he's the big guy. You know, imagine a, a bull standing in a field and there's all these sort of pigeons, right? The journalists are the pigeons. But once the bull is gone, the pigeons are, are rooting the roost, right? Yeah. They're all talking to each other and they're all saying, this guy has totally lost his lost his marbles, as, Pe- as Pearson said uh, the other day. So there's going to be all these articles about, oh, here goes Nigel Pearson. Everything he says now is subject to more scrutiny and there will also be professional provocateur pigeon- pigeons who are now going to be sent to mm-hmm. to try and to wind him up, which, which it turns out is easily done. This is totally unnecessary. I was listening to Brendan Rodgers talking to the media after Hull, the Hull um, game, Liverpool lost. And Brendan Rodgers is, you know, we've talked about him a lot on, on this programme one thing that he does have is the ability to keep his temper at all times yeah I, I honestly I can't think of him losing his rag I mean I've, I've I've known him to get carried away maybe to with self-laudatory you know talk maybe to get swept along on a, on a wave of of emotion in that sense but he doesn't get angry with people he doesn't snap or lash out uh, I mean there was a few needly questions in that I mean you can imagine they've just lost the hull again and it's a disaster but he just is quite neutral in his tone. You know, people are saying, oh, Balotelli, you know, is he playing for his future? This was one of the questions. And, you know, you could, there's the potential there for him to get annoyed with that. But he's just like, well, you're always playing for your future at a club like Liverpool. Ferguson got annoyed
0: though, all the time,
4: with journalists. Ferguson, abandoned. yeah, but for, you can, you can afford to do that only if you've got all these league titles in the bag. Yeah, a, a man who has won, you know, 10 league titles has can behave differently I would imagine well he definitely was
0: behaving that way before he had all the titles though he f- first arrived down I don't think he was no I don't think n- he no. was
4: on oh, really no he wasn't he, when he was uh, with,
0: the, with the players maybe he was but not necessarily with the journalists oh, he no, might have no, built, built some good relationships oh, in the oh, early absolutely,
4: years absolutely yeah, and sure, he was still friends with the same guys 20 years later you know what I mean? The, guy, the ones
0: he wasn't kicking out, yeah. Yeah,
4: the, you know the the sort of lads who were the same age as him were the only <laughs> only people he he extended any respect to. You know, it was it's obviously uh, part of it. I'm sure was was just to annoy the all the other journalists. Now, sorry, you know, sorry, son. The badly dressed. You're 55. You know, yeah. I've got no respect for that.
3: I'd love to know what the 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 reaction within Leicester City is this morning to Nigel Pearson's yeah. performance last night. Like, are the media the department going Nigel, like? We need to go back out there. You need to kind of address this. Like he said in the, he said in that uh, that article, Ken, that you just read out. He said, "I have to accept what I am, rather than necessarily change for the sake of it." Mm. I I I wouldn't categorize his, his changing now as something that's just for the sake of it. I think it's required. I think it, it, because this isn't a one off thing. This isn't just last night where he's maybe annoyed by a decision or a result. This is this is a pattern. This is a behavioural thing. Like mm. he's. That has to change. When
0: you say it's required, though, uh, I, I don't. will, will Leicester City not, not say, well, hang on, we're very close to staying up here. Uh, this guy's performing miracles if he can keep us in this division. Well, yeah, it's a relationship. And we'll, and, we'll, and we'll take the... So they mightn't see that it's necessary for him to actually have a happy relationship with... The, they, they might accept bullying a journalist every couple of months if it means that they've got
3: a really good manager. But I, I don't think it necessarily stands that just because they stay up that no aspect of how he does the job needs to be looked at. Do you know what I mean? The team can stay up and avoid relegation, but it doesn't mean that everything Nigel Pearson does or did throughout the season is then put forward as this is a model of how you keep your team in the side. No. Bullying and, and demeaning and being rude and horrible to to totally unnecessarily. Again, yep. this isn't a, a long campaign of really unhinged people kind of camping outside his house and he eventually cracked. And you could say, well, God, you know what? I'm amazed he didn't crack before now. This is just... The run of the mill questions that you're going to get being a manager after a, a match. Now, I can't point to anything that that he's dealing with. Like where you go, wow, God, how did a, he handle that? I agree, but thank a, God he's got his coaching a, badges to deal with that. Right? Is it a
0: can't, bit of a utopian world you're living in here to say that
3: that a club will?
0: Not just overlook all these things. I'm not saying that. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying that sort of Premiership survival makes any of this right. I think it's really badly how he's uh, uh, he's acted very badly this season. But I would imagine if you're looking at it from the club's point of view, in the world that they inhabit, in the in the the circles that they all move in in Premier League football, they might say, "Look, of course this isn't great, but we're happy enough to overlook this. P- premiership survival overrides all these more ethical concerns."
4: I I, I mean. Absolutely. I mean, if, if Nigel Pearson was like the magic bullet that was going to keep Leicester City in the Premier League, he would not be. They would, there's no way they would sack him. I mean,
0: or but not, not even sack him, but even ask him, or actually order him to tone down the
4: behaviour. Well, the problem, the, the problem is not so much that they, that the owners, in this case, uh, Leicester City, you're talking about a Thai family, uh, the Shri, uh, pravas. They—it's uh, not a question of them looking and going, "Oh, Nigel, you know, we're a bit disappointed that you seem to have disrespected some of the uh, journalists." You know, this isn't the right image for Leicester City. You need to—you uh, need to improve that. The problem is that at some point they're going to sit down with Nigel Pearson and have a—you know—performance review. That's what happens. You know, if you, with the owners, what happens if they ask Nigel Pearson a slightly, what he considers to be slightly uh, insolent question about how things have gone? What do you think happens then? Is it a case that Nigel Pearson uh, responds to irritating uh, questions <laughs> from journalists with, like, these two-minute sort of harangues or, or by, you know, insulting them in, in various ways, but when it comes from the owners, that, he's a, that he simply rolls over and, and plays dead? Or is he, as he explained to Stuart James in that interview we keep referring to, uh, a man of such fundamental principle that he will not back down? He, if he feels that he is in the right, he will never back down. And, you know... If a stupid question... A stupid question is a stupid question. Whether you've been asked it by some flyweight hack in the in the press pack or, you know, the 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 family that owns Leicester City Football Club, he's going to respond the same way. I mean, I think that's going to be the problem. If this is the way that he reacts under pressure, like he he when he gets annoyed, he lashes out, then what's going to happen when he has a performance review? Because you know what? They're always really annoyed. You're
0: implying that he would place the owners of his club, his employers on the same level as a bunch of journalists who he sees as a nuisance on a day
3: to day basis. I was about to jump in there and say, well maybe this is just a disdain that he has for the media, but I can't say that because he's already verbally had to go to a fan and physically had to go to an opposition player. player <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now the media. So I think Ken there's, there's 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 a lot to what Ken's saying. Like this isn't this isn't aimed at one one element of society. Like wild dogs it's as
0: well, Richard. I don't know if you heard this story, Go but on. this is from an interview about two years ago. I haven't got it in front of me now, Ken, but the basic details are Nigel Pearson told a story to a journalist that he'd been on holidays in Romania or something. Yeah, he was
4: in Transylvania, I think. And, yeah, uh, yeah,
0: you know, you know, up the mountain somewhere when suddenly he's surrounded by four or five wild dogs thirsting for blood. You can imagine the teeth sharpened, the yeah. drool dropping out, the, the scent of blood in the air. And Pearson just, whether he stared them all down or physically got involved. One way or the other, those dogs didn't... didn't it was an, an alpha... There was an, was an
3: alpha dog. He actually
0: did tell the story that he fought off these dogs. Well, He I did, he, he, told, he volunteered he, that he, information. He, he, there he,
3: wasn't a witness came forward and no, he had to... No. He had to Th-
4: <laughs> there was five of them. And what they do is that one goes for you and the others uh, circle around until one of them can bring you down. What they yes. essentially do is rip the throat out. This is amazing. Uh, he escaped them first time by throwing himself into a patch of brambles and nettles where he knew the dogs would not follow. This is uh, from an article by Sam Wallace. In the when they attacked the second time he had only his walking poles to defend himself I backed myself against a tree Pearson said I thought I don't want to get attacked from behind I was absolutely goosed by this point he did not go into details about how he survived saying only that he managed to get rid of them <laughs> <laughs> so
3: this guy is less. They need to stay up he needs to stay in the job we need Nigel Pearson in the Premier League
4: I, well he's doing he, he's getting there at the moment he's doing well uh, and Leicester have scored a lot more goals for instance than Sunderland, who are now third from bottom, and Sunderland look look like they're in trouble. Uh, Hull obviously got that win against Liverpool, but they could well stay up. I just I just worry what's going to happen because uh, I just I think the man that we're kind of seeing in these press conferences is probably the same Nigel Pearson, regardless of context, and that's going to be a problem if it's the mm-hmm. owner on the receiving end.
0: Are they going to stay up at this stage? I mean, last night's result was a game as a bit of a shot to nothing in some ways.
4: Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to say. I mean, I think they, I think they probably will actually, because I think Keep Your and Burnley are going to go down. I mean, they're they're too far back at this stage. Uh, well, look, n- none of these teams are actually definitely gone yet. Any of these teams, if they did what Leicester City have just done and won four in a row, are probably going to survive. Um, and no one could have seen that coming from Leicester. But I think Keep Your and Burnley are probably going to get relegated. So then it would be between Leicester, Sunderland, Villa, and Hull. Um, for the last uh, relegation spot and I think Leicester will probably be the ones be one of the teams that, that escapes.
0: Richie, think Leicester going to survive?
3: I'm still hoping for a late push in Burnley. Your your buddy Sean Dwight. The save today.
0: Slightly different character Sean Dyche from uh, from everything we see compared to uh has he ever fought off a pack of wild dogs? <laughs> how would Sean Dyche react threatened well, I suppose we, we'd like to all think
4: we'd be heroic and we'd survive Probably sit again, down and think. probably sit down and talk to them. What's with these when how do
0: you become wild dogs?
4: I suppose you're a dog Is this good for the group? I suppose they all were It's more the, the question should be How do you become a tame dog? You know? <laughs> I mean wild dogs have been Have been around for longer You could say
3: Richie mm, I'll leave i leave it there Good luck <laughs> <Lance>. <laughs> Thank you
4: So He's almost like having a second captain isn't he? <sighs> Second captain First captain Whatever
0: Richie Sadler's here Richie how are you? How are you lads? How are you lads? Richie, how are you lads? How are you doing
3: this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city
1: knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important.
0: Murphy, you have the fixtures in front of you there, the Leicester City's fixtures? Uh,
5: I do indeed. Uh, Saturday m- uh, morning, the 12.45 kickoff. they're at home to Newcastle. Then they're at home to Southampton. They're away to Sunderland on the 16th of May, which uh, I suppose you could say that there's nearly six points you could, it could be there. A, it could be a relegation In, in six some points, ways. It's definitely a the chance of that being. And the, <laughs> the, the last day, they have QPR at home. Um, and that could also be the, the relegation I like those road. last
0: two games depending on how the results go up until this stage because as we've said, mentioned in last week's show it's the only interesting thing left about the Premier League this season so let's hope those teams keep getting the results that will keep the the relegation race wide open until mm. the final weekend Murph would you back yourself to be able to bury your head in the sand from an upright position like an ostrich absolutely not I can like me you inflexible
5: well uh, does the ostrich bend his knees to get his head in the sand? No need to. No need to. Well then. Big long neck him. Forget about that then, because uh, I can't touch my toes. Mm. Well, if, if you're asking me to keep my legs straight, I can't actually touch my. I, to be honest, I can barely touch my kneecaps. So the idea of getting my entire head stuck under, underneath, uh, like into the earth, forget about
0: it. Sounds it, like I myself, I need to start doing some yoga. Yoga lattes. No, yoga
5: lattes. That's what it's all about now. It's half yoga, half Pilates. And all work out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: a new career venture, a business yeah. venture by the sounds of things you're involved in. Remember. All right, Jonathan yeah. Wilson is ready to talk to us, Jonathan, well, it's taking up a theme we spoke to you about recently regarding Jose Mourinho's anti-football philosophy and the idea that he's obsessed with being the very antithesis of Barcelona. He was involved there. He's the one person who came out of it and said, Nah, don't like this. There's got to be a different way of doing it, a more effective and possibly more destructive way of playing football. You wrote an article on this since, at least one article in The Guardian. And you appear to have taken some flack by comparing Jose Mourinho to the devil.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, maybe I I should have been more specific. I was comparing him to Satan in in Paradise Lost, uh, who I I, I, I read Paradise Lost for the first time when I was 17 doing my A-levels. And the the character of Satan, I I found, in in that context, I found absolutely fascinating that he's this fallen angel who decides, I mean, you know, the, the, the quote which seems to me very Mourinho-like, he decides to wage war by force of guile, eternal war, irreconcilable to our grand foe. So the point I was making was you have this uh, yeah, Barcelona this sort of barsocracy who are dominant, where you have all these great coaches who've come through Barcelona in the 90s, and he's the one who decides to play football in a different way. He's the one rebel. He's the one outcast. And the great thing about Satan in, in Paradise Lost, or, you know, the, the, the the thing that makes him an attractive character, is, okay, he, he's proud, but he's sort of acting on a point of principle, and he's acting against an omnipotent being who has all these other angels. He's got far greater resources. And that's it's a huge problem Milton has, I think, that um, that Satan becomes quite an attractive figure, that he's this, this anti-hero who really has no chance of winning, and yet the the war between good and evil you know, remains you know Milton's time. Um, yeah, you know, even sixteen hundred years after after Christ, and you know four hundred years beyond that, the, the, that that war still ongoing. And if, if he is just a fallen angel, that's actually an incredible uh, achievement to carry on that fight. Um, and so, you know, my, my point, I guess, and Milton obviously is is very troubled by that. He starts to write the thing, and then he realizes, oh, hang on, the character that you're warming to is, is Satan. That. Yeah, all all the angels ranged on the side of heaven come across slightly priggishly, you know, sort of lecturing and lecturing him in how to behave when they they know they're going to win because they have the omnipotent on their side. Um, and so I was suggesting that that Mourinho's sort of his pride, the way he acts, is is not dissimilar to to what makes Satan this this, this attractive antihero in in Milton's poem. I wasn't actually suggesting that Mourinho is the devil
0: yeah but it's hard to get into yeah, but- all that on Twitter you know <laughs> 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 the, the, uh, the yeah I
2: mean I, I also I, I probably I wrote the piece um, and I, I suspect that the inspiration mean, you're, you're quite right the company with you sort of triggered the thought but then I, I was uh, I, I was in I was in Rome last week playing cricket and uh, I went to the, the Pope's audience and, and I you know, was relatively near the front I was sitting there for two hours waiting for the Pope to turn up uh, trying to write this piece because it was the only time I had. So it may be that the environment... I can't believe sort of, you
4: I can't believe... Were you, were you in St. Peter's itself,
2: tapping away uh, on, a, on a laptop? Uh, no, just outside, It was in the square.
4: Okay. All right. Well, I, I just hope that you are showing respect for your surroundings. Uh, you know, it seems as though... I mean, I don't know why you couldn't have just waited for the Pope to turn up instead of using the time to work.
2: <laughs> because it was two hours to kill, two hours in which nothing else was happening... And because I had to go to the drinks function afterwards.
4: Okay, uh, what was the point of this story again? <laughs> Which story? The what, the one about you playing cricket in Rome.
2: No, in no, fact, I was. I, I wrote it while sitting in 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 St Peter's Square. Oh, I so see. It led me down down those avenues of thought.
4: Well, the the um, the most famous quote probably about Paradise Lost is William Blake, who said. Um, the reason Milton wrote in Fetters when he wrote of angels and God and at Liberty, when of devils and hell, is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. Um, it's clear that Milton actually, that Satan is the hero. He's by far the most interesting character. Uh, all the other, the the God and the angels are smug and boring uh, and hateful. And uh, I, I was wondering if this is actually really the way that you uh, feel about football. I mean, is Jose Marino uh, and what he's doing, this kind of bad guy, uh, rebel football, actually, uh, despite what everybody's supposed to think, the most uh, entertaining, the most interesting thing to watch in the game?
2: Um, I'm not sure if it's the most interesting, but I think it is interesting. And I think if all football were played in the Barcelona way, it would rapidly become quite dull. I think one of the great things about football is that there is this great variety. It's not just Mourinho. I mean, there's also... Your Klopp's way of playing football is, is different Simeone's is is perhaps more allied to Mourinho's but it, it's very different to, to how Barcelona do it but Mourinho's clearly in the vanguard of that anti-Barcelona movement and you know, I I guess instinctively I do warm more to the Barcelona way of playing but there's also something there and I guess this is what, why the analogy works, the, there is something slightly priggish about certain people who who um, who propound that philosophy that, 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 that you know, their sort of um, you know, they're, they're, they're belief that, that their way of doing things is the only way, that theirs is the right way. Well, I, I, you know, I like the other way as well. I like the fact there's a, there's a difference. And you know, it doesn't have to be Mourinho who, who offers that difference. I think you know, the way Stoke played under Tony Poulis, I remember watching him when they we beat Tottenham. And there was something for about ten, fifteen minutes. Tottenham just couldn't get out of their box, and balls were being pumped in the box. And that was sort of viscerally thrilling. And it wasn't pretty. It wasn't to do with possession. You could argue it wasn't even particularly skillful. But it was great to watch. And it's I think you know the beauty of football, perhaps beyond all other sports, is it offers a greater variety. That it has that, and also has the twenty-seven, twenty-eight passing moves that end in Cambiaso's goal against, uh, against semi-Montenegro in the 2006 World Cup
4: uh, you are writing then uh, in the kind of follow-up to this about the the sort of history of anti-football or what people are calling anti-football and you kind of draw a couple of distinctions between well good and bad kinds the, the interesting thing about this I thought was the, uh, the contribution that Argentina has made uh, to this maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the specific contribution of that nation to this uh, way of doing things
2: yeah I mean I, I think there's a specific reason why Argentina have 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 addressed this, and I, I think it, it's. I mean, I, I'm, I'm nearly finished a book about Argentinian football history, which which sort of goes into this in far more detail. So again, that's that's possibly why it's at the forefront of my mind. But Argentina, you know, is, is a is a country without basis. You know, they had to, it was, it's a country almost entirely of immigrants because of the, the slaughter of indigenous people in, in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, and, and so around 1880, you suddenly have this country of, you know, a million Spanish immigrants, a million Italian immigrants, um, I think 30,000 British and Irish immigrants, 400,000 from uh, Russian Jews or Eastern European Jews, 400,000 from the Middle East. And they've got nothing in common. And they've got to try and find uh, some common ground, something that makes them Argentinian, the Argentinidad that they constantly search for. This is, a, you know, this is a very conscious debate that goes on and football very quickly becomes a key part of that but actually the one thing that everybody agrees on is that they want the team the blue and white stripes to win so the way you play football then becomes very very directly in argentina a um a, a portrayal of the nation this is what the nation is these are the values that the nation holds proud and and so i think in argentina the way you play is far, far more important than almost anywhere else. And there is this great desire to theorise, and generally in Argentina, but but about football as well, precisely because of that, because the way you play is so closely allied to your self-perception as a nation. So you have what's known as the golden age from the, I mean, you can argue about when it starts, but from 1920s onwards, professionals in 1931, through until the, the, the crushing defeat to Czechoslovakia at the 1958 World Cup when I lost 6-1. And it, the, this is an era when, the players are these great Bohemian figures. That they're they're all great dribblers. Are very skillful. They they go out dancing a tango on a Saturday night. They stagger home. Well, maybe they don't even stagger home. They just you know they they stagger to the stadium on a Sunday morning. Have a bottle of wine and a chicken casserole and then they're ready to play. And it's not about fitness. It's not about strength. It's about skill and it's about this sort of artistic, uh, you know, idealism. And then in in the fifties, well, late forties and the fifties. Against that, you get Vittorio Spinetto, the, the the great coach of Veles, who were not one of the five big clubs who, who dominated the title for right until 1967. But they, by effort, by by force of will, by discipline, by determination, start to get some good results. And so this this form of football becomes known as anti-football. Um, but there's nothing sort of underhand about it. It's just football that's not based in skill. This then develops with uh, the Estudiantes side of Rosalto Isabel which included Carlos Bilardo, who who takes on the philosophy. And they did cheat. They might not have cheated in the early 60s, but certainly by the time they start winning the title in 67, they're they're a pretty unpleasant side. They're they're very aggressive. There's violence there. They they will spit on opponents. They'll punch opponents when, when a referee's not looking. I mean, there's a story that Bilardo, who bizarrely was a trained gynecologist, had access to information about the wives and girlfriends of, of other players and he'd used that to wind them up on the pitch and there's a story particularly about, about Perfumo the, the international defender who he, he knew about assists that his wife had had removed and he mentioned it and Perfumo turns around and punches him gets sent off uh, there's even stories which bilardo sort of semi-admitted although it's not clear whether he was joking or not that they took pins on the pitch to stab people when they're marking them now that seems to me anti-football this, this cheating, this sort of going way beyond the boundaries of the laws and it's it's But the the problem is in Argentina and elsewhere, the term anti-football is used both of that, which seems to me utterly reprehensible and unforgivable, and just playing defensively and working hard, which seems to me what you have to do if you're not that skillful. Or even if, like Mourinho, you you select that as the the best way to win a particular game.
0: Didn't some of those Estudiantes players get arrested after a game against Milan?
2: Yeah, a famous game in 1969. The I mean, there had been a whole series of incidents leading up to this, and I think there was a perception that the the government even was becoming embarrassed by the fact that so estudiantes who, who who won three libertadores titles in a, in a row. And um, the, the the image they were projecting of Argentina again this idea that football is a projection of a nation, and they they lost the first leg to Milan in the Intercontinental final uh, I think it was three 0 they lost in, in Italy came back to to Argentina no way they're you know they're going to get back into the game it's an incredibly violent game there's a, a famous picture of of um, of combi the the um, Milan player lying on the side of the pitch covered in blood. Uh, where he's, he's been elbowed in the face and he's broken his nose. He bizarrely then got arrested as he left the pitch because he'd, um, he was accused of dodging the draft because I, I think he had Argentinian heritage. Um, so he hadn't done his national service. But also, after that game, three Estudiantes players were arrested and jailed for a month for you know, the violence that they enacted during that match. So, yeah, that Estudiantes team, sort of the high point of anti-football, as seen as being something way beyond the laws rather than just playing defensively. See
4: this is kind of the problem ultimately isn't it? Um that you always end up just getting a bit carried away like when uh, when you decide to sort of go down the bad guy route. It's kind of like where are you going to stop? And so it becomes this almost um an end in itself like this kind of a neurotic or self-defeating uh, kind of badness. I mean, you think of like Leeds maybe in the later years. Well, this is something Brian Clough used to say about Leeds, you know, that they got they they were thinking so much about how they were going to you know, I bet all the bad things they were—the dark arts that they were going to perpetuate, that they kind of forgot to, you know, to win the game. Uh, that that actually it it became a sort of a, almost a distraction from from what they should really have been doing out there in the field.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and I mean, I think Leeds is a good example. I think Herrera's interside is a is a great example that in 1967 they were, you know, apparently cruising to to the Serie A title. Um, they were in the European Cup final against Celtic, where they were you know, big favourites, and th- eventually the sort of negativity turned on itself and 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 ended up destroying them. That you talk to players who, who were in that interside, and they were they were kept in this camp in in Estoril and or in this sorry in this hotel camp's possibly the wrong word. They're in this hotel in Estoril. Everybody else had been cleared out of the hotel. There was you know, not even any any staff there from the hotel, so there was nobody to talk to. There was only each other. And they, they they talk about um, you know, being in the room and 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 hearing the player next door vomiting through tension, and that eventually this sort of negativity generated this 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 anxiety which overwhelmed them. And not only did they did they lose to Celtic having having taken the lead, and again, yeah, you, know, you talked to the players who, who played in that game, and they said they they had this profound sense of inevitability that they they realised that Celtic was coming in these waves, and they were never going to break free of that. And this from a side who were. You know, famous for their defensive resilience, sort of midway through the second half, effectively just giving up and saying, "We, you know, we can't keep resisting." And then it you know, wasn't just in that game; it was this great general mental collapse that they they dropped a huge number of points and ended up surrendering the, the, the Scudetto as well. Yeah. And I never really recovered that that inter So I, I think that is a danger with with teams who try to play reactive football consistently. That, that eventually, yeah, the negativity does does end up eating away. I, I, I guess they lose faith in their own ability because the whole time they're being told to focus on, on the opposition.
0: Jonathan, excellent stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, thank you. Wow, a journey from paradise lost through the slaughter of indigenous people in Argentina to the Leeds team of the 1970s. Just another <laughs> conversation with Jonathan Wilson.
5: I'll, uh, I'll say it on behalf of all of the listeners. Report on sport.
0: <laughs> There's um, a nice picture there. A nice picture. There's a very evocative picture of that Milan player that Jonathan was talking about covered in blood.
4: Yeah, so he was talking about it, it's it's pretty bad. Most of the blood is on his shorts as well. I hope it's come from his nose. Um, he looks in he looks in really poor shape. But like, um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's an interesting kind of question that whole thing. And I think the reason why at the end of at the end of the day, the the reason why your Pep Guardiola way mm-hmm. is actually better. Is nothing to do with style or something to do with um, how the ball is around the field or the kind of goals that you score or even that it's even that you're more likely to win if you play that way it has to do with the fact that it's a way of playing which says to your players i believe in your human potential i believe in your uh, creativity let's let's go out there and do this let's go out there and do this together let's express you know what's uh, what's in us let's uh, uh, you know what I mean? It's yeah. a positive, it's an absolutely positive way of doing it, as opposed to the other one, which is kind of focused on the other uh, team and kind of negative to begin with, which may actually work. and may work and is sometimes, you know, going to really get po-faced about it quite, it can be very funny watching a, a good a team that's really good at that. I mean, it can be, it's one of the great sights in sport, you know, to see a, an evil team defeating a good team, <laughs> you know, by uh, underhand tactics. It's what we watch sport for. But it is, it, it really is. But, you know, from time to time. But I think ultimately, it's you're better off with a style that says to your place, I actually trust you. I believe in you. It's more, it's just, you're more likely to get more out of them in the long run by doing that than by doing it the other hmm. way. Yeah.
5: You know, all right, Pep. You know, you can go outside and write me a nice little poem, right? But here in this stadium, I'm going to teach you a little something about life. Yeah. That's what Josie Marino is saying. This is what life is. I
4: mean, we can. Life we can, doesn't rhyme, Pep. Yeah. That, you
5: know, what we're talking about here is real life. It's a struggle. It's a pain in the arse a lot of the time. Everyone's got
4: a plan until they get punched in the mouth.
5: Yeah, that's exa- that's basically exactly what Jose Bruno is saying. And that's something that, you know, some of us can, can
0: probably sign up to. Ken, you've clearly never had an audience with the Pope in Rome. Because you felt... Uh, uh, no. Yeah, I, I actually have. So I, I can, what? I can see... Yeah, an audience of the Pope isn't... You don't sit there chatting to the, chatting away to the Pope. You, you're there milling around with thousands and thousands of other people. Oh, uh, all in the square, all waiting for him to make a fleeting appearance in his little... He pops up through this little window, does a wave. a different
5: window every... I mean, you could have quite a laugh with that, couldn't you? This, this says, a few word, you know,
0: says a few words, you're not understanding a huge amount of it. I think he might do a little bit of English here and there, but... Decoy the,
5: pups come out in, like, different windows. <laughs> <laughs>
4: oh, it reminds me of the, of the clock tower in Poznan when a goat comes out. At, at, <laughs> at, <laughs> at, at, yeah. But
0: what happens then is he starts... Uh, he, he, gives a few shout-outs, and I'm not making this up. So he'll say uh, a, a big, I'm going to say a big up, Ken. Yeah. Big up to the nuns who've come over from Mexico, and there's this little gaggle of nuns. Yay! Yeah, yeah, yeah. they've all got their and Mexican he- flag with a picture of the Pope on it. It's a little, little bit, I'm going to say, like a football stadium atmosphere, yeah. Oh, is it? Not quite that, like Anyone that.
5: from Barcelona in here tonight? No? <laughs> so Good. It's, de- <laughs> it's definitely not
0: disrespectful for Jonathan to be typing away in that environment.
4: You're just, okay. you're just
0: sitting in a, an outdoor area waiting for... An old guy to come out and
4: say a few words. I've been there a couple of times, out. Yeah. Saint Peter's St. Peter's Square. Isn't the square, of course. It's kind of a circle. Mm. Yep. Um, once it uh, was in high summer. Lots of tourists around. Uh, very B- crowded. A bit
0: warm, it's a. Very warm, very sticky. Yeah.
4: The other was the dead of night, January. The absolute dead of night. Nobody there whatsoever. I didn't... Uh, did I, I thought... I, I tried to think spiritual thoughts on both occasions... I just didn't have it for me. So,
0: just
5: <laughs> Ken some. got a nightclub recommendation from someone who really wanted to get rid of him. She's like, yeah, the Vatican, yeah. Dude, just, just knock on a few doors.
0: Our next podcast, Second, Irish Times Second Captain's podcast, is going to feature a chat about Floyd May- Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao. Not so much the boxing side of it, more the uh, hideous nature of Floyd Mayweather side of it with the litany of domestic abuse charges he's faced over the years. And the reaction to that in America, which has been more, way more pronounced in this fight than it has been previously because of the nature, the magnitude of the build up to it. It seems to really have come to the I say come to the fore. I mean clearly everyone's just gonna watch the fight when it comes to the fight, but it's a conversation that's being had and one that we're gonna have on that show. And we're gonna talk to US Murph. I don't know for how long Murph, but long enough to get very excited about our trip to San Francisco, which is only yeah, a couple of weeks away. So looking forward to it. I'm hoping US Murph is happy now that he's invited us, that we're actually coming over and that we're not some sort of unwelcome guests freeloading on his time and possibly his, uh, his house not and his workspace. We're staying in your house, Brian. Yeah. Just
5: three of us are staying in your house.
0: Relax. That's it from us. Thanks very much for listening to this one. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. And thank you, Kieran. Secondcaptains.com for any details on that trip to San Francisco or, or anything else you want to have a look at.
2: That's the second time it's gone on. They never go home. They never go home.
3: They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hey, folks. I'm Mark Maron from the
4: WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft tissues